Welcome to the Grateful Historians podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history. We call ourselves the Grateful Historians because we are truly grateful and blessed. And we are back again today after our last round, which was a Memorial Day type tribute service for our local veterans. And we're going to revisit a topic that uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I'll let Chance introduce it here in just a minute. But uh, we had a lot of interest from people uh, to come back and discuss more about uh, a certain individual that we discussed earlier. Uh, A little bit of time off this summer and an opportunity to do some of these podcasts, which we always enjoy getting together and visiting together and doing these things. Chance, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's good to be back again. Um, it's getting hot now. It's We're definitely in summertime. So without further ado, we are going to revisit Choctaw Chief David Folsom. Uh, by popular demand, everybody has been very anxious to hear more about this incredible individual. There's a lot of information to cover. And last time, we really didn't have uh, as much time to go into the specifics and details that you could have. So today, you get to elaborate a little bit more. So I know everybody's excited uh, to hear about his life in a little bit more depth and detail than what we had previously. I think I start off by saying that Chance's instincts were better than my own because when we did that first one, I think I showed it to him and he said, now is this going to be two podcasts or one? And I said one, and I think his instincts in having done two would have been more correct. Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to go back and do this more in a chronological manner than we did the first time. We'll start with his birth and the incidents of his birth, and then we will proceed forward sort of through his life and just try to touch on – we did touch on many of the important aspects of his career and his life, but there was so much that we left out that we kind of felt like doing this – chronologically, starting with his birth and moving forward, would make the most sense. Uh, So as we mentioned last time that we talked about Chief David Folsom, we mentioned that he was born in a little village, Choctaw village, called Boktuklo, uh, which would be, I believe, in modern-day Noxubee County. And we mentioned the fact that there was this superstition among the Choctaw people that when a child was born if the mother experienced a difficult delivery or if the child was sickly or had problems that uh, it was not that uncommon for the family to eliminate the baby to dispose of the baby and as it so happened when David Folsom was born his father who was uh, a white man Nathaniel Folsom was away. He had gone down to New Orleans uh, buying some trade goods. So his wife, his Choctaw wife, one of two women that he was married to, was uh, about to deliver a child, and she developed an illness. And an illness that went through the village of Boktuklo, and a lot of people got sick. And the woman's mother, the grandmother of the baby, after the delivery, took the child and literally hid the child for a period of time until the father came back home, and then not long after that, they moved. So had it not been for the actions of his grandmother, uh, it's quite likely that David Folsom would have died as an infant, uh, which is really kind of an interesting backstory to, to this most impressive life that he had. He lived such an interesting life, uh, encountered so many famous people, 
and uh, interacted with so many famous people. So uh, that, that's going to be our circumstances today as we kind of get in, delve into his background and talk about some of the things, some of the circumstances of his most interesting life. Okay, so were there circumstances about his childhood that made him stand out and made him different? Obviously, being the son of a white man and a native woman, uh, that alone is going to set him apart. But what other aspects of his life are going to make him unique and stand out? Well, the first one that I would mention would be his obvious intelligence. Uh, we'll, we'll talk, I think this podcast will demonstrate his intelligence above a, a lot of other things that we could mention. Uh, but as you said, he was the son of a man named Nathaniel Folsom and an Indian lady by the name of Anichi Hoyo. And that name in Choctaw, Anichi Hoyo, translates to she who is preferred above all others. Uh, now, Nathaniel Folsom, the Folsom family who had moved to Mississippi, have an interesting background, too, because they were British loyalists during the time of the Revolutionary War. And they wind up in the area that's going to become Mississippi around the time of the Revolution. And Nathaniel marries two Choctaw women. David's mother was Anichi Hoyo and her sister. They moved to Boktuklo very soon after the, de- after the uh, birth of David and Pigeon Roost becomes their home. Now, this is a site, if you travel down the Natchez Trace, about um, a mile south of Matheston, there's a little t- pull-off on the Natchez Trace Parkway with a sign that reads Pigeon Roost. And, of course, then if you go to the sign, it tells you that it's about a mile through the woods to, to get to the actual location of where it was. But why was David Folsom different, or why are we spending so much time talking about him? Well, This location of Pigeon Roost brought about 50 or so, on average, it is said, travelers up and down the Natchez Trace to this location. It was a hotel. It was a trading post. uh, You could get fresh horses there. And so all of this interaction with these white people traveling up and down the Natchez Trace made him unique. Uh, along with, as we already mentioned, his obvious intelligence. But um, there's something else that's going on about this time, and I think it's important that we frame it in the time frame of, of his early life. Here's what's happened. He's born in 1791, and about the time that David was born, there was a really serious drought that took place here in what's now Mississippi. And, of course, agricultural producers as the Choctaws were a lot of their crops were destroyed well what's their other alternative for getting food Uh, these warriors would sometimes go on these hunts for deer hides which they would tan and they would sell to traders now that doesn't happen a hundred years earlier because there isn't this influx of white traders for them to trade with so they might have hunted for the food, but they were not hunting for the trade aspect as they are in the 1790s. And as more and more white people move into the South, the, the, what's now the United States South, uh, there's opportunities for market-type trading that didn't exist earlier. Now, this is kind of a two-edged sword. You think about it from this perspective. They needed goods. They needed things that they could trade for food but every time they take one of these deer hides that's one less of the deer who's in the area 
So what do they have to start doing? They have to start traveling further and further away from home to get more deer. That eliminates more and more deer, and then the deer become very scarce. So there started to be this this question of how are we going to carry forward? And it must be that we do that through education and through learning because our old way of life is being either A, taken away from us, or B, changing to such a degree from internally that we can't sustain ourselves. I, I think another thing about Folsom that would have made him different, he would have identified himself as a Choctaw. We'll talk about his early life here in just a second. But if you had, I, I think, I read a little bit about David Folsom and, and, and read his letters and that type of thing. His father's white. His mother is a Choctaw. But if you had asked him, how do you identify yourself? He would have used the phrase Choctaw, which was their word for Choctaw. Uh, we have kind of changed the, the, the pronunciation of that word over time. It, the, the word they would have used was Choctaw. Uh, but he would have identified himself as a Choctaw because he didn't understand English for the first early few years of his life. Okay, so he was changed by a pretty significant event at the age of seven. Uh, give us a little bit of information about that event, what it was, and how he specifically was affected by it. Okay, so as we mentioned, he's growing up in uh, Pigeon Roost, which is along the Natchez Trace. It would be located about a mile south of present-day Matheston. Something did happen, though. He had a half-sister. Remember that Nathaniel Folsom is married to two Choctaw women. By the other Choctaw woman, Nathaniel had a child named Molly, who was older than David. And there were, I believe, chance 24 children in total. It was 24 or 25. The number is not, maybe off by one. But um, one of his half-sisters is named Molly. And Molly married an Indian agent by the name of Samuel Mitchell. And Samuel Mitchell lived some distance away in the land of the Chickasaws up north, further north in present-day Mississippi. And she lives in this home with this white man, surrounded by white company, and she's very lonesome. So they travel to Pigeon Roost, and she makes the request of Nathaniel and Anichihoyo, the mother, can David come live with us? I'd like a companion. I'd like someone, you know, to, to interact with. She's, she's homesick for her family and her old way of life. So they allowed this to happen. So at the age of seven, David Folsom left home to go live in the home of Indian agent Samuel Mitchell. Well, you can only imagine, Chance, the, the, the cultural aspect of this, okay? Because, as I said, he identifies himself as a Choctaw, and he doesn't speak English. I would dare say it's probably because his father, Nathaniel, is not there much. He's constantly trading amongst the Choctaws and making these trips to markets and various places, so he's not home. He's learning from his mother. Well, now he's in the home of an Indian agent, uh, an educated white man to certainly a, a large degree. Well... There are books in that home. English is what is spoken in that home, so he has to learn it. Well, guess what else happens? Samuel Mitchell buys him a violin, and he learns to play the violin. And we know this because in some of the records, it says by some of the people who came to Pigeon Roost later, some years later, we were entertained at night by the fiddle of Chief David Folsom. So uh, he liked, from a very early age, it appears, he liked entertaining people. It would, would probably be the word to say. Sadly, his sister is sick, and after about two years, she died. So that left Samuel Mitchell as uh, a widower, and 
So then David goes back to live at Pigeon Roost. He returned to Pigeon Roost. He was about 10 years old. But before we talk about him going back to Pigeon Roost, I want you to think about something. This Indian agent is constantly having people in his home who are government officials. And now David is between the ages of 7 and 10. He's learning English, and he's a sponge for information, as we'll see later. He's just a a very knowledgeable individual. But he is hearing in that home government officials talk about Indian policy. What are we going to do with these Choctaws and Chickasaws? And how might we acquire more land? And all these type conversations. So he's hearing it from an insider's perspective. But here is a young boy who they don't know probably is listening and overhearing these conversations who's going to go back and become a Choctaw chief. So you add to the fact that he's the son of a white man. You add to the fact that he's lived in an Indian agent's home, and now he is a person who can entertain and carry on conversations with lots of different people, both Choctaw and white. That makes his background very unique, I think. So he returns to Pigeon Roost. He's about 10 years old. Um, in that home of Samuel Mitchell, he would have been introduced to education. He would have been introduced to a Western style of living. He would have been introduced uh, to Christianity. And so in that home, he develops what I call an understanding of a larger worldview, that the parameters of the world are bigger than just the Choctaw Nation. And so that that was a unique thing for, for most young people. I can imagine, too, that probably by that point would be when he really starts to struggle with his identity, especially uh, having being raised from birth in a Choctaw environment, um, believing that's the way life is, this is right and wrong, and then going, like you said, going into Christianity and uh, this white education. I I can imagine that struggle really kicking off at that young age of him trying to decide, you know, which is right, which is wrong, or is there some sort of balance that can be walked? And I I could see that being a really big uh, struggle for him right about that time. But how did he transform from this young boy uh, that you just talked about and kind of setting the stage to become a powerful leader in, in into this position of leadership? Well, as we mentioned on the last podcast, and I think this is, we, we can't overemphasize this point enough. In the last podcast, we mentioned that the line of secession for leadership in the Choctaw tribe went through the mother's side, not the father's side. Okay, so on the father's side, he has a bit of money and resources. They're not wealthy people, but they're they're better off than the average Choctaw family in terms of material goods. On the mother's side, Aini Chihoyo is a woman who is a direct descendant of Mashula Tubby, who is a chief, and so there are three distinct areas of Choctaw influence. There are three chiefs in the tribe, so he is standing in line as a descendant to possibly be someone who could become a chief through his lineage. So that that point can't be overstated. So he's he's naturally already in that leadership kind of role. He had spent a lot of time conversing with white travelers. He'd been in the home of Samuel Mitchell. So he was learning the government side of things. He was learning the settlers side of things. He was sympathetic to the Choctaw viewpoint because of his birth. But what he doesn't have is a formal education. 
and he realizes, and, and you know, it had to probably be fostered by his time in, in Mitchell's home. Um, I, I'm not saying that Samuel Mitchell turned him out at the age of 10, but I am saying there wasn't any reason for him to live there any longer. And he had gotten a taste of education there, and he realizes, I want more of that. Well, he really doesn't have the resources to do that. So what he does as a young man is he grows his own crops. He goes out into the woods with an axe and he chops firewood and he loads firewood and sells wood and sells the proceeds from that crop until he gets enough money in the year 1807 at the age of 16. He has enough money chance for one semester of schooling. So he gets a horse, he gets an outfit of Western-style clothing, and he travels to Elk River, Tennessee, some 250 miles away from his home, to get an education. And it was said that he had $24. So he makes this trip to the school. It's actually along the Elk River. I don't know the name of the school or if that name has even been lost, but that's the, that's the location where he travels to. It's 250 miles from where he is. And he he gets basically a semester's worth of school. Now, his money runs out, dries up. He can't get any there, – there's nothing locally there where he is at uh, Elk River to sustain him. So he has to come home. But his parents were impressed enough with what he had learned in six months because, again, this is a bright, super bright individual that they convinced – a Chickasaw Indian who was learned, a man by the name of James Allen, he was uh, also of, of mixed heritage, to come to live at Pigeon Roost for one month and help him continue his education. His, his six months of education had been in language, linguistics, that type of thing. And now uh, James Allen, this learned Ch- uh, Chickasaw, is going to teach him mathematics. So... Um, Apparently, this worked out well because Alan was so impressed with young David Folsom that he wanted him to come back to the land of the Chickasaws and stay a bit longer and continue his education, and they allowed him to do so. So he had, just to sum it up, about six months of formal education sitting in a school, and then he had about two months, one at Pigeon Roost and one in the land of the Chickasaws with this Indian named James Allen. Uh, that amounts to his total education. But this is setting him on the path of leadership that's going to happen a little bit later. When I think from some of the quotes that you read to me earlier on, um, it, it's clear to me, and I'm sure yourself, to, to see his, his deep desire to to learn as much as possible and his, his capabilities to, to do so in such a short amount of time is, is really impressive. But explain how Folsom is going to grow in prestige as a result of the War of 1812, um, living in this kind of tumultuous time period. You know, how is he going to play a role in this, and, and how does that war affect him? Well, Chance, as you so well know, oftentimes success is a product not only of hard work and your dedication, but timing. You know, something coming along at the right time, and um, the War of 1812 happened about the time that David Folsom was becoming a mature man. And had it not, had that happened at a different time, who knows where he, where his life would have taken him. But here's what happened, okay? About the time of the War of 1812, two things are happening. The United States 
is beginning to expand. We've had the Louisiana Purchase. We've had um, some exploration of that area of the United States, and then there's this discussion amongst people. How far are the boundaries of the United States going to be? How far are we going to carry people westward? And what are we going to do? And how are we going to fill up this land that we have just purchased? And are these places going to become states eventually? Or is this just going to be territory that we have? So there's that whole discussion. And then simultaneously with that is a change in Indian policy because now that the United States owns this land west of the Mississippi, there's a change in Indian policy, right? Because... What do we do with these tribes that are in the southeast United States? Should there be a different set of, you know, there's always been this idea, look, Choctaws, you're not beholden to United States law. You have your own set of laws, and we've somewhat respected that. These tribes that are east of the Mississippi are now going to become, there's going to be a real serious discussion in the United States about removal. And just as that is happening, here comes educated David Folsom into the picture. Now, what else happens? War with Britain, right? War with Great Britain in the War of 1812. And there is this happening that takes place where these loose groups of Indians who have always fought amongst each other and have not gotten along historically and have had all these struggles in warfare with each independent group, one chief comes to the realization, look, the only way we're going to survive this and hold on to these lands that are east of the Mississippi and into the Midwest and that area is if we band together as a group and put these old hardships that we've had and these old concerns, these rivalries that we've dealt with over the years, put those aside and we come together as a unit and fight as a group. And that Indian's name was Tecumseh. And so Tecumseh is going to travel throughout all these tribes east of the Mississippi. And he's going to try to convince them to join somewhat with the British, but certainly as a combined confederation of Indian tribes fighting westward expansion of the United States. So where does he come? Of all places, chance, he comes to Pigeon Roost. Now, we think about these things and these people right where we are. And we're, you and I are in Matheston in the City Hall recording this. Within earshot of where we are right now was probably at some point in time the Indian Tecumseh, one of the most famous people in United States history. Andrew Jackson came through here. Um, you know, and on and on we could name these famous people. But Tecumseh comes to visit the Choctaws, and he's going to try to convince them to join this Indian alliance, this confederacy. So there are three Choctaw leaders at the time. As we mentioned earlier, there's three chiefs. There's a chief by the name of Pushmataha. There's a chief by the name of Mashulatubi. And there's a chief by the name of Apukshanubi. Well, after much, much discussion, one of the chiefs, Shula Tubby was somewhat willing to go along with this, with Tecumseh and his idea of, of fighting uh, the Americans. The other two were not. And Chief Pushmataha, who we'll talk more about later, was very prominent and very respected in the Choctaw community. And he delivers the final speech and he says, no, we're not fighting them. In fact, we're going to align ourselves with the United States. And he says to Tecumseh, you need to leave. 
And, of course, Tecumseh's not by himself. He has braves with him who have made that trip. And he says to him, you're not welcome here any longer. And who does he send to escort him out? He sends this young man named David Folsom, who lives right here at Pigeon Roost. We want you to travel with Tecumseh to make sure that he leaves this area and that he doesn't stir up any more sentiment against us and, and the Americans. So Folsom was chosen to escort Tecumseh and his braves And where do they go next? They go to the land of the Creek Indians, who just happened to be mortal enemies to the Choctaws. There had been this long animosity between the Creeks and the Choctaws. Well, as Folsom gathers up his Choctaw braves and they travel what would be eastward toward the Tom Bigby, they're going to escort Tecumseh uh, across there. They get attacked by Creek Indians. And in that action... Folsom is going to be, it, it says he's shot. Now, Chance, we don't know whether he was shot by a bullet or whether he was shot by an arrow. But at any rate, he was shot in the shoulder and had to return home. But if there had been any question about the alliance of the Choctaws, that question is now resolved because they're now firmly on the side of the pro-American side. Tecumseh goes on to the Creeks. They are very receptive to this idea of joining this Indian Confederacy. And Folsom returns back with his braves and tells everybody what happens. And now the Choctaws are fully aligned with the United States. So this just kind of further solidified that pro-American stance that the Choctaws had. Well, the war is about to begin. And some of these Indians, and think also in the back of your mind, it's not just that they're pro-American. They realize the pressures that are about to be upon them, and they think if we serve and serve with distinction, maybe there might be some leniency granted by the American government, or there might be, you know, they might look upon us fondly and say, okay, we'll not come up with policies that affect the Choctaw people. So they join this American cause. Folsom joins. He spends three years in the United States Army, and he becomes Colonel David Folsom. Uh, He fought in the Battle of Pensacola, fought alongside Andrew Jackson and his men there. It was a mixture of uh, regular troops and uh, Choctaw regulars who fought at Pensacola. They won that battle against both Creek Indians and British regulars. And we know that he had interaction with Andrew Jackson because when the war is ultimately won. The War of 1812 is ultimately won by the Americans. I, I say one chance in quotes because it was kind of almost a stalemate. Let's just go back to the way things were before the war. But when the war ended, Andrew Jackson and his men returned up the Natchez Trace. And as late as about the year 1910 or so, there were still beech trees at Pigeon Roost just here south of town that had the names of these soldiers carved into them. So we know they stopped at Pigeon Roost. Well, you know there had to be conversation between General Andrew Jackson and Folsom, who owned the property. So uh, that, that, that's kind of – and so his being a colonel now and his taking the leadership in rejecting Tecumseh and them joining the, the full pro-U.S. movement there – vaults him into that leadership position. I think it's really important to to note, like you already ha- already have, and, and really put an emphasis on this. This is an ex- excellent example about uh, the complexity of history and, and how these natives, like you mentioned earlier, are, are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. That On one hand, you've got a common enemy now 
against the United States with Britain. And, and this is sort of an opportunity for the natives, like you mentioned, to band together. Tecumseh realized this and other native groups are going to see this as an incredible opportunity. And on the other hand, you know, there is a fight to be had and do you want to be on the winning side? And I really think that the Choctaw Nation understood that as well. Uh, I couldn't imagine being in that position to try to make that decision, but uh, ultimately, like you mentioned, it's incredible to see how this is going to really push Folsom into this leadership position. Now, in the previous podcast, we talked about how Folsom encouraged missionaries to come to the Choctaws and how they were able to translate into Choctaw and write a Bible. Uh, Can we go into some more depth about how that worked and uh, ultimately Folsom's kind of interactions there, his responsibility and uh, his part in, in all of that? I can do that, I think. But before we do, Chance, we'd like to mention our sponsors. We would like to mention McGinnis Dirt Services. You can contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. If you need a pond built, a levee cleared off, bush hogging done, stumps dug, access road or a lane, even a house pad, uh, for any and all of your land improvement needs, you would do well to contact Austin McGinnis at McGinnis Dirt Services at 662-552-7750. The Grateful Historians Podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. And I would also like to mention my friend Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance. You can see Michael for all of your insurance needs. Michael will help you with all those needs from coverage for your home and autos to your life insurance plan, and he will tailor those to meet your individual needs. Farm Bureau is a Mississippi company, and Michael is a local agent committed to taking care of you. So go with the home team. Call Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance. Michael's number is 662-258-7802. Again, that number, 662-258-7802. Eight zero two, And Chance, we like to give a shout out occasionally to people who are listening that we know have been listening to us. I would like to mention a friend of my sister's who is listening in the Mobile, Alabama area. Donna Johnson is a listener to our podcast, and we are grateful for her and the fact that she's listening. I think told some people about our podcast, so we appreciate her. Now, back to the topic at hand. And the question I believe was about how Folsom um, encouraged these missionaries to come to his home, and and how how did that take place? Well, I I think before I mention that, I think I should mention one other thing. We talk about this man who lived this life where he's one foot in one culture and one foot in another. This man comes out of the War of 1812, now firmly established as a Choctaw leader. He wants education. He wants his people to become, because he realizes not just education as a means unto itself, but education that could transform his people and possibly help them hold on to their land. So it's a matter of life itself that they become educated, he thinks. But Chance, when he comes home from that war, we have records of him coming home, and it's said that he brought his war lance home with him, and there were scalps of Creek Indians on his war lance. So is this a man of education? Yes. Is this a man of war? Certainly as well. And and obviously very good at warfare from what accounts we know of him. Um, But now we add that the Christian influence of this education. 
So he writes to these missionaries and says, please come to us. We want this education. And we, of course, we went into this in the last podcast, so I'm not going to discuss how all that happened. But how did they take this language, which was a spoken language only, and in that little bitty house at Pigeon Roost, how did they turn that thing into a written language and then translate things that, like the Bible, into Choctaw? Well, as we mentioned, this all takes place here at Folsom's home. And I'd like to mention the people who were involved in this process. There was the missionary Cyrus Byington, another by the name of Alfred Wright, another by the name of Loring S. Williams. And I think I mentioned this the last podcast, but Loring S. Williams stays in the Pigeon Roost area to start a school. And apparently he was so well liked by David Folsom that David Folsom named one of his children Loring S. Williams Folsom. And then, of course, you had the Folsom family. I wish I had time to go into all the people who were in Folsom's family. I don't. But he had a brother named Israel who was an educated man who went on to become a minister um, who was an extremely bright person. So in that home, these individuals sit down. They start discussing this. Okay, how do we do this? Well, how do we turn this from a spoken language into a written language? Well, first you've got to have an alphabet. And different than our own alphabet, there were 21 letters in this Choctaw alphabet. And Chance, you can imagine the trouble. Okay, the, the alphabet, you can think of all the sounds that could be made and converting that into, into an alphabet. That, while that would be difficult, it's not impossible. What is much more difficult is transforming something like the Bible, which is loaded with figurative language, right? I mean, there's all these concepts in the Bible of symbolism and figurative speech. Um, so I, I'll give you just a couple of examples that I know of. Uh, one example that occurs over and over and over again in the Bible is the concept of sheep and a shepherd. Okay, so, well, so in the ancient Middle East, a sheep and shepherd were a common phenomenon. And the person who protected the sheep was the protector and, and the one who, who um, extended life and held life in his hands. Well, the Choctaws don't have sheep and they don't have shepherds. So how do you transform those parts into something that would be understandable to the average Choctaw who hasn't had much background education? So they converted it into this phrase, which I think I'm saying closely. The Choctaw phrase for the good shepherd would be Chukfopawa Apistakili, which chance would mean, now think about this, domesticated rabbit watcher. So the closest thing they could think of, because they didn't have animals like sheep or watch over them or have someone who did, they did keep rabbits. And so the person who watched over these rabbits and cared for them, that became the concept of a shepherd and the sheep. Domesticated rabbit watcher. Now, if that throws you for a loop, what about the concept of rebirth? <laughs> you know, how to describe that thing. And the closest thing they could find in the Choctaw language was this word. Akchilanichi, which is a word that means to deliver from danger. And that was the concept of a savior, 
um, you know, and we think so much about the things. Think about um, in ancient times how important a tent maker was. And if you were just to remove that and put it in modern setting and say tent maker, what, what, that, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything to a modern setting. But in ancient times, that literally meant housing. Okay. So, you know, and they sat there in this room over and over for months and try and, and toss these ideas off each other. Okay, how do we explain this concept to someone who's never heard this before? And I would have loved to have been a witness to those conversations. Uh, now, there are very few people who know that this took place right here in Pigeon Roost in Mississippi, but it deserves a historic marker or something along those lines that this took place here because it's so important to what happens to the future of these people. I find that so fascinating. So we've covered his time in the War of 1812, uh, his his efforts in building a Choctaw language from the ground up. Uh, what other aspects of his life are there that point to his influence before the Choctaws are ultimately going to be forced into removal by the United States government? Well, and, and there are certain aspects of his life that we're not going to cover again because we covered those in the previous podcast. His selection as chief, um, so much of his life is is interesting because he was the first Choctaw who, when he decided to get married, did not marry in traditional Choctaw customs, but went out and found a magistrate and got married by United States law. So he was the first to do that, the first recorded one that we ever have. So what are other aspects of his life that point to his influence before they were removed? Well, I think one big important one, maybe the most transformative thing that happened to him happened in September of the year 1824, where he is brought along as both an interpreter and a guide and um, an advocate for the Choctaws. Again, those three chiefs, uh, Pushmataha, Mishulatubi, Apukshanubi, and Folsom, and a group of about 10 Choctaws travel from the Choctaw lands to Washington, D.C. And uh, really a difficult trip because what happens at a place called Maysville, Kentucky, is that the oldest chief amongst them, Apukshanubi, in Maysville, Kentucky, either walked off the balcony of a hotel, that's one version of these events, or walked along a path behind the hotel and fell down a cliff. There was a rocky sort of line behind it into a creek, and he fell into that, um, apparently in a state of drunkenness. And David Folsom was the first man to arrive on the scene and to try to render aid to the chief Pukshanubi. But he had such um, damage to his head that, that he, they were not able to do anything for him, and he died. So they're down to two chiefs already, and they haven't even gotten to Washington yet. So they reach the city of Washington, D.C. as about a now a nine-man delegation. And when they got to D.C., instead of meeting with government officials, the government officials just said, okay, we're going to put you up in a nice hotel and we were going to basically wine and dine you during the length of time. They stayed, I think, chance two months before they even spoke to anybody. Well, in this whole time, they're, they're living off of the government dime. But 
do you think these people are doing this because they want to be kind to them? Or do you think that they're doing this because they want to get them in such a state as to be friendly to terms of possible removal? And it is said we have the records, and this is almost astonishing. The bill for their stay in this hotel in Washington, D.C., in which they consumed, now David Folsom did not because he didn't join into this, but they consumed beer, gin, whiskey, cocktails, and did considerable damage that's listed as breakage to the rooms. The total bill for the time that they stayed there was $2,149.50. Now, that's in 1824 money. I don't know what that translates to in modern money, but that is a tremendous bill that they run up. So here's the long and short of it. Government officials decided to take these Choctaws. They decided to put them in this state to get them drunk, to get them full of this good food and, you know, lived in excess for this period of time with the, with the eventual idea of we'll get them in a room and we'll get them to sign an agreement that they don't, that's, you know, favorable to us and not favorable to the Choctaws. Well, unfortunately, while they're on that trip, Chief Pushmataha gets sick and he dies. And was it a result of this living uh, in this manner? I don't know. But I do know that he passed away. And right before he passed away, he told them, have the big guns fired overhead for my funeral. And there was this big, big parade through the streets of Washington, D.C. The, the uh, military came out because, remember, Pushmataha had fought in the War of 1812 as well. And so they fired the cannons and had this big elaborate funeral for him, and he is buried with military honors in Washington, D.C. But now two of the three chiefs are gone. So there's going to be this power gap that exists. And when Folsom writes back, and he wrote back to these missionaries, by the way, I think Chance has come up with that total for the, the bill that would be in my, almost $50,000 for their stay. So they consumed $50,000 worth of liquor and that much damage to the room during the time that they were there. So that, that's just an indication of what took place. There's a power vacuum now. So Folsom realizes this. He's a very sharp man. He realizes there's a power vacuum. And he writes back to these missionaries, and they ask him basically, how do you like Washington, D.C.? And he says, it is a wicked place. I don't care for it. I wish I was at home. But coming home from that trip, he returns from that trip. I don't want to say the leader of the Choctaw people, but certainly in the forefront of Choctaw leadership. Um, he is going to build a house along the Robinson Road that would be south of modern-day Starkville. He is going to become, Chance, a charter member of the Columbus, Mississippi Masonic Lodge. He lived along the Robinson Road. We know a little bit about his life before they moved to uh, what's now Oklahoma. He owned 10 slaves, numerous buildings, and a hotel along the Robinson Road. That's Chief David Folsom. Now, in the last podcast, we got into a lot of other things about his life in Oklahoma, his writing of the Choctaw Constitution, and his leadership position there, and how he died. We're not going to rehash all that now, but I would like to add one brief thing that was said about his life. This is from a book written by a man named Cushman, who wrote a book called History of the Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Natchez Indians. And he said this of David Folsom, and I thought it was very appropriate. 
In his home life, Colonel Folsom's virtues shone in all their unvarnished beauty. This was his chosen sphere. Here he delighted to receive and entertain friends who were both privileged with his intimate acquaintance, official or private, he entertained rich or poor, high or low, and for warmth of affection to his people, kindred and cherished friends, for singular unselfishness, he had few equals and no superiors anywhere. I would read what is stated on the top of his tombstone. It says this, To the memory of Colonel David Folsom, the first Republican chief of the Choctaw Nation, the promoter of industry, education, religion, and morality, was born January 25, 1791, and departed this life September 24, 1847, aged 56 years and 8 months. And as an inscription on his tomb, it says the following, He being dead, yet speaketh. And so with two podcasts, I hope that we've done a, a job of summing up his, his life and some of the things that happened to him. Have we given a total portrait of him? No, because you can't do that in two hours. Now, you just simply can't. But those are the highlights of some of the things that have happened to him. So um, glad we went back and, and re, retouched this topic because people were interested. And Chance, we'll, who knows, we may do one on these missionaries sometime or this language issue. That's, that's a real, that's a very interesting topic so we could go back and, and address. And we are the grateful historians. We always like to end with a word of gratitude. And Chance and I had this conversation a, a little earlier uh, we've had an opportunity while we've been off for a couple of weeks of school. We've had some feedback from parents who have taken their child to uh, maybe a museum or given them some book to read, or you know, we, we've had that feedback from from parents. And as educators, he and I both appreciate the parents who are willing to take up time with their children to contribute toward their education. Um, I think to watching my sister with her two kids with a grease board sitting in the living room when they were little bitty kids, you know, working on that alphabet or, or working on math or something like that. You don't know from a very early age, uh, a chance, even prenatal, we, we've learned that science tells us that, how important it is to read to your children and how important it is to teach them that education is important and if you seem interested by it, it's always, always said about the classroom. If you seem interested in it, they will think that it's important, not a chore, not a task. And uh, we are extremely grateful for parents who do that. And we have a lot to do, and we're, we're certainly very thankful for them. That's going to wrap us up for this episode. We will be back very soon with another episode of the Grateful Historians podcast. Thank you for joining us.